You're listening to SBS News. We've heard stories of grief and resilience from a diverse range of people. Those who have lost loved ones and found their culture a place of comfort and others who at times have found their culture a difficult space to navigate during their personal grief journey. We've explored grief beyond the concept of death and have looked at other life-changing forms of loss. This includes the loss of identity, career and relationships, as well as the gut-wrenching experience of ecological grief, where individuals and communities feel a deep sense of anticipatory loss and grief for their home and environment. But we've also heard stories of resilience and community, how people unite in times of loss and both the new and old rituals people participate in to navigate these often life-changing experiences. I'm Katrina Stirrett and this is the eighth and final episode of Living Loss. In this episode, we unpack some of the wisdom we've gained, particularly around supporting each other through grief. Is there a right and wrong way to support a loved one, friend or colleague? Or does it depend on the individual or the type of grief they may be experiencing? The answer is complicated. You might recall Kelly Renee reflecting on the solace her Maori culture provided following her father's death. It's a beautiful send-off. Um, and all we're doing really is wanting to send them off onto their next journey, not ever being alone, being around them constantly so that they know that they're loved. Um, Maldives, we're incredibly spiritual uh, people. So um, even before we would enter the home, we would wash our hands with water and sprinkle it over our heads and then go in um, and people would come in and share their stories of how they met my dad or the interactions that he had with them. To hear so many other people share these stories, definitely something that you don't get in a Caucasian funeral, so to speak. But her culture was also a complex space to navigate as saying goodbye is deeply linked to community in Maori traditions. I just remember, I think by that two, day two, I was just so overwhelmed by the constant visitors, the constant people. I mean, we're talking 50, 60 people coming in at any point to, to say what they, and I just remember feeling a little bit, and I feel silly thinking about it now. I remember feeling like, can you just stop for a minute? Can I just have, you know, half, cause half an hour with my dad. I really want to sit with my dad by myself, just me and mom, but I can't. And I remember that because it's very much part of my culture. I remember sort of having difficulty with that difficulty with sharing my dad in those last times. As Griefline counsellor Marianne Bowdler explains, there isn't one model for how an individual may wish to be supported following the loss of a loved one. I would view grief as an attachment trauma. It's in your brain and it's about pair bonding and it's how we bond with our babies and then how babies uh, form relationships with their siblings and how we connect with everyone in the world. And that's common to mammals. Almost universally, we have a sense of panic. Um, your heart beats faster. Your breathing is more shallow. You can't sleep. 
your appetites decreased. But out of that panic, it might lend itself to aggression and physical violence, or it might lend itself to withdrawal and retreat, and I'm just going to get under the blankie and I can't face the day. In terms of our emotional response, when that starts to kick in, it's it's sorrow and anguish and anger and sometimes release and relief and happiness. The grieving period is also not linear. Ms Bowdler explains how it's actually common that the initial response can feel surreal as people navigate death admin, such as funeral arrangements and bookings, before the real pain surfaces. So the first thing that we support people with is accepting the reality of the loss. But they have their own time. We, t- it t- we take our time. There's no rush. There is a time when, when the penny kind of drops. And what happens then is just an overwhelm of painful emotion. In our like sort of predominant Western culture, we think, oh, maybe, I don't you get two days off at work. And then it's like, well, you know, it's three months that you should probably be fine by now. That happened three months ago. This real pain might not start until six months after the death. This Western allocation of grieving time is something you might recall Sophie Mills also seeks to challenge. As the founder of Grief Revolution, an organisation that tries to break down taboos surrounding death and grief through counselling services and community workshops, Sophie advocates for healthier conversations around loss. It's been a really interesting journey. It was actually after the birth of my second son that I I came to the work that I do, the Grief Revolution. Um, I started to notice a lot of similarities between birth and death. I noticed that actually the energy in the room uh, when he was born was very similar to the energy in the room when my dad died. You know, they're both portals in and out of this world. Um, So I'm actually a death doula and a grief coach. Um, So a death doula, essentially, I support families at any stage, pretty much from a terminal diagnosis right through to the moment of death. And then kind of the grief coaching happens mostly after that person has died and I support the family. Um, Although there's a lot of anticipatory grief that happens once somebody gets a terminal diagnosis. So I also talk with the dying person around what to expect and how to alleviate uh, some of their fears and similarly for the family too, how to support them emotionally. Sophie felt a lack of empathy and space around grief in our dominant Western culture following the death of her own dad and hopes to normalise conversations around death. Part of her community-based work for the grief revolution is encouraging greater death literacy, even among children. Ideally, what I'm hoping to do is alleviate anxiety, allow people to just flow with the process more. But because we live in such a fear-based culture, it is really challenging to essentially retrain our brains to view death differently. Um, Because, you know, I mean, there's so many mothers that don't even say the word death to their children or even, I mean, many adults say, oh, my such and such passed away as opposed to my such and such died. When I tell them that, hey, it's actually better for the child when you use concrete language in terms of such and such died, then they almost exhale and say, oh, thank you. You know, I just wasn't sure. I don't want to traumatize my child. And what I tell them is that when you dance around subjects, you know, children are intuitive. They, they, they can feel the energy. Of, and if you're uncomfortable, they're going to sense, oh, there's something here that's unsafe. 
Grief Australia's Chief Executive Christopher Hall agrees that a one-size-fits-all template doesn't work well for grief. He says many people will cope with support from family and friends, while others might experience what is called prolonged or intensified grief. There's another group, probably about 30%, who... um, kind of, they're hurting. I mean, they're they're struggling to make sense of the loss. They may have very limited social support. And so being with other people, identifying with people who perhaps are a bit further down the track, um, sharing the sorts of things that others have found helpful can be really important. And then for that that 10% I mentioned earlier, um, often we take a a reasonably structured approach. We've got, again, good evidence-based approaches. um, And perhaps over 10 to 16 sessions, we would work through a range of things that really identifying what are those things that have derailed this very normal process of grief. And again, that might be feelings they have about a sense of of guilt or uh, responsibility. It might be that um, it's the relationship with the person who died. This is where many come to rely on their culture or rituals, whether ancient or newly developed, as Mr Hall explains. Perhaps I could give an example of, of one ritual of a, of a young woman whose husband had died of cancer. Uh, she was part of a faith community and she had decided sometime after his death that she wanted to start dating again and she wanted to take off a wedding ring. But it just didn't feel right that she could do that. It just even physically difficult to take off. So she had a conversation with her priest about constructing a ritual. And so together they worked out this thing where at the end of a service, they invited her and her family to come and surround her. And the priest who knew her husband spoke about him and her and their relationship. And then he put to her the wedding vows, but in the past tense. And so she answered yes to each of those vows. And then he simply asked for the ring. She said it came off as if by magic. And so that was really a ritual of transition, allowing her to move from one space, one identity in a sense, into a new identity. Funeral director Joseph Ho is very aware of the different family dynamics that can come into play following the death of a loved one, particularly among the Chinese-Australian communities he works with. It shows how grief is not only tied to our culture, but also how it adapts across different generations. It's actually very common nowadays that they are never getting two worlds because they are handling the way they say goodbye to their parents or the deceased. At the same time, they're doing what the deceased traditional are. So you still have the Asian, Australian Asian would go through a the, the norm of choosing a music, um, doing a slideshow, doing a eulogy, and then they will leave time for the monk to do the chanting as a final farewell. Um, whereas the older generation will just focus on the chanting part. But a lot of time now the grandchildren will step in and say, oh, I, I saw that at a particular funeral. They do that. That's how the Western does it. That's how I want to do it too. We can accommodate that too. So dealing with the grief in both generations, Grief is clearly as personal as it is universal. For Julia, her Pentecostal church was a somewhat suffocating space for navigating grief following the loss of her mother. I I didn't feel like I had a private one-on-one time with her. Um, it just happened so quickly. I just encountered a lot of strangers at, at the event, um, the funeral service especially, where, you know, it's just people, connections from church, friends, 
And it just felt like a spectacle rather than actually a, a commemoration. It felt like it was something people just did for the sake of doing it. I think it was shared on Facebook as well. People were sharing photos, comments. Um, it went everywhere. And so we also had people from overseas, like our relative, relatives reaching out. And suddenly it felt like everyone just wanted to know what was happening. They were so interested in my mom's life. Whereas, you know, when she was alive, there was not much of that. So I would have loved it to just been more private, more, you know, few people and less meet social media presence in a way. Julia has had to find her own support mechanisms to grieve in a more personal way. I've turned to counselling. Um, I've turned to spirituality. I've turned to self-care, self-help. I've tried different things, <laughs> to be honest, and I still am learning how to how to handle grief. But yeah, I at this point, I, I don't have any sort of help from church to help in that process of grieving, um, which is really sad. And I think it's a disadvantage when it comes to being in that sort of community is this is something personal. It's something everyone goes through on their own. It's something they have to learn to reflect to. I don't think religion gives an answer for that. It teaches you principles. And I think I'm just learning to live by those principles and believing that, you know, there's always something better on the other side. And of course, there are different types of grief beyond the loss of a loved one. Griefline counsellor Abby Catchlove describes the concept of disenfranchised grief, those losses that aren't typically acknowledged or accepted within society. In order to offer valuable support for such losses, it's important to give them credibility. So the disenfranchised grief is a grief that's not publicly or openly acknowledged. So this could be the loss of a pet or an abortion or a miscarriage or um, loss of personality or ability due to health conditions or uh, the loss of a relationship or a friendship breakup. I think grief is pretty confusing and overwhelming in and of itself. So I think it definitely does or can compound that kind of, yeah, I guess people either not knowing that it's a thing that's that's absolutely valid or kind of going in on themselves because they're feeling these things and it doesn't make sense or it's not spoken about. The loss of identity can be a uniquely difficult grief to navigate because this experience is often minimised. Hilary spoke about her struggles with identity when she lost her dream job as a classical musician in a small orchestra. I think one of the hardest things that for me was a loss of self-confidence and you spend a long time, um, particularly as a musician, getting one-on-one feedback, which is um, a circular, okay, you haven't done this right, you need to improve. And so that's great. It's a very healthy sort of situation. But to have lost that sense of, okay, I have skills and they're valuable and they're useful and they're recognized by somebody paying me, to not have that makes you feel like, oh, am I worthy as, well, am I actually a real artist? Am I a real musician or am I just somebody who was pretending for a while? Ecological grief is also a disenfranchised grief because it's not something that is widely recognised. Ricky Dank is a climate activist and proud Gadunji Wakaya woman from Karaniki and Barclay Tablelands in the Northern Territory's town of Buralula. She says First Nations' connection to the environment transcends terms like ecological 
and is emotional as she describes the loss from witnessing fracking on her country. I think for me, the other reason too why we're fighting so hard is because our old people need a place to go back to. Our children need a place to go back to. So when we die, we go back to their country. When we are alive, our children need to go back to country. And if we don't have a place, where where are we going? Where 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 do my old old people rest their souls? We won't have a place. Where do my my grandchildren grow up? We don't have a place. We are refugees in our own country, not of our making, but by the making of greed. By the by, people wanting to make money. The tools required to navigate this grief is unique for First Nations peoples, but are vital strategies to consider for everyone. It can involve protesting, and also for Ricky, an invitation to non-Indigenous Australians to partake in an immersion in country to deepen understanding of the interdependent relationship Indigenous peoples have with the environment. We needed them to see how we interacted with country and how country interacts with us as well as our non-human kin and that it was important for them to understand or start to learn to understand the relationship that we have with country. You know, we need um, our country to survive and to be healthy and then our country needs us. And I thought if we did this, if we taught people this, that they them themselves would develop and build a relationship with country. And then, you know, when you've got more people loving country and learning about country, they're willing to fight for it as well, like we are. Griefline counsellor Abby Kachlov explains how disenfranchised grief often comes from misunderstanding or a lack of ability to empathise with a specific experience or feeling. And then it's hard to manage other people's expectations in a context like this, you know, speaking to this sense of disenfranchised grief. But, you know, as with a lot of grief, navigating other people's response and reactions to loss can be really confusing and isolating because without having experienced it firsthand, it can be difficult for people to really understand the nuance of this grief, that some things look straightforward from the outset, but it's, it's not straightforward at all. In many ways, Indigenous Australian experiences of grief have long been disenfranchised as they intersect with intergenerational trauma, such as that suffered by members of the Stolen Generation. You might recall Uncle Michael, who was removed from his family at just 10 years old, alongside his six siblings. He says he was subject to horrific sexual, physical and emotional abuse in the institution, and turned to alcohol as a young adult to deal with this trauma. It wasn't until he discovered the power of collective healing 50 years on from this trauma that Uncle Michael was able to delve into his own grief among the safety of other men. We are a community of our own, right? And this is what we we understand now as we come together. Collective healing is that sense that when we get together, we trust each other, and trust is probably the most powerfulest thing. That is the magical word with us. And because of where we were, it's very difficult for us to trust anybody because of what happened to us. But so when when we when we give our trust, it's so precious. And but if it gets broken, well, then it doesn't go back. As a member of the Healing Foundation's Stolen Generations Reference Group, 
Uncle Michael shared stories of this grief with other men who were subject to the same horrific violations. He says talking doesn't come easily, but it's vital to break the cycle for future generations. The pain never goes away.、Uh, we wake it up each time when we do these type of talks, but、uh, I understand above everything else that if we don't talk about it, it slowly kills us from the inside. I'm identifying this trauma that is growing just from me. My concern is now. Is the next generation are the ones who are going to suffer? While ever they take children away from families, families become broken, communities become broken. So it isn't possible to heal communities, but it is possible to rebuild family structure. Happy family makes happy communities. We tell the stories and we talk about stuff now that's happened to us in the past. They are the knowledge holders of the future. But of course, there are coping strategies and ways to navigate these often heavy feelings of loss. When Abby talks about ways to navigate ecological grief, she acknowledges the pain, but also research around more hopeful responses from individuals and communities in approaching environmental loss. This includes such things as ecotherapies or turning towards nature for healing, as well as community gardening and environmental activism. It doesn't always have to be despairing, I guess, and it it really、um, focused on the fact that when there is support and when that's shared,、um, that it can actually ignite some creative、um, or a, a creativity to kind of reinvigorate their research. Like it doesn't, you know, people can kind of assume that grief is all doom and gloom, but I think my understanding of grief is that it can be a medicine for us, and it's. Wanting healing for us, it's not wanting to sabotage us. Ultimately, it's about sharing our stories. This is a wisdom Yarika describes as intrinsic to Aboriginal Australian culture, but this sense of community is something all cultures can foster when it comes to navigating grief. We give grief a place, you know, and we call that sorry business. It's ceremony. It's sacred time for family to come together. Um, to sit, laugh, cry, share memories, but also remember that we have a deep respect and understanding for the afterlife. So my grandmother always used to remind us: the living belong with the living, the dead belong with the dead. Katrina Stewart, SBS News.